Thanks for listening to the Toronto Legends podcast. I am your host, Andrew Applebaum. My guest today is Jean-Louis Brennenkmeyer. Jean-Louis is the founder, president, and primary funder of Little Canada, our home and miniature land, a giant 3D, super detailed miniature representation of Canada housed in a 45,000 square foot space formerly occupied by a Good Life Fitness at Young and Dundas. Jean-Louis was born into a European dynasty. Five generations back, his ancestors founded C&A, a global clothing retail empire. Today, the Dutch-German Brennenkmeyer family business employs tens of thousands of people in retail, finance, and real estate. The size of the entire Brennenkmeyer fortune has been estimated to be $29 billion. That's billion with a B. Although Jean-Louis could certainly have spent the rest of his life on a yacht, his ambitions were much bigger, or rather, much smaller. Instead of retiring in opulence, he has spent the last decade and $24 million in building Little Canada, celebrating the vastness and diversity of our country. As the project proves, even in miniature, Canada is a big place. Welcome, Jean-Louis, to Toronto Legends. Thank you for joining me. Where are you and how are you? Uh, hello, Andrew. It's, it's great to be here. I'm actually uh, 60 feet below ground at Young and Dundas uh, on the lower level of Little Canada. And we're going to, there's tons of good stuff to talk about, about that space and how you got in there. So in doing the research, I'm not surprised to hear you're so far below ground, but uh, uh, certainly as winter comes in Toronto, as you know, being here for so many years, we like to get underground into that path but we're going to get to all this great stuff if you don't mind me asking how was your summer and and how is your family doing uh, all doing great thank you i've got my wife and four boys um we are as of first of september we are empty nesters for the first time wow congratulations <laughs> uh youngest is uh yeah finished high school and he's actually in europe as we speak okay as he applied for the family business training program and was accepted and so he started on the 1st of september in amsterdam and uh, and what's the range of the other three boys so my oldest is 24 then he's in toronto works for a wealth management startup company then my second son is 22 he's out in british columbia in prince george he's a helicopter pilot and then our third son is here in, also here in Toronto. He's studying to become a sous chef. And as I said, my youngest, he's 18 and in Europe since 1st of September. Well, you're going to have to pick up some new hobbies now. Uh, if you're going to be an empty nester, you have all this extra elbow room you didn't think you had before. That's correct. Well, I've got uh, my biggest hobby is Little Canada. So that's where I spend most of my time. Absolutely. And we're going to get right into all that. If you don't mind, I'm going to jump in to learning all about Little Canada by first learning all about you. Let's go all the way back and get the Jean-Louis Brennenkmeyer story. Where were you born? And tell us about your family and your upbringing. So I was born in Wimbledon, just south of London. I was born in the hospital, literally a stone throw away from Centre Court at uh, the old Wimbledon Tennis Club, famous for its tennis. And I'm the oldest of six. I have one sister who came shortly after me, and then four other brothers. We all grew up in London until I turned 15, and then 
we moved to Germany where we all finished high school. And then I joined the family business and worked in the Netherlands first. Then I went to Belgium and then to Paris, then to the UK, to back to London, then from London back to Germany and then Germany to Belgium. And then in 1999, we moved to Canada. I'm going to, that's a great overview. And I want to back you up a little because I think you have some interesting stories here. When you graduated from high school, you were all set to join the family business, but the application process wasn't as simple as you thought. How did you have to get your first job in the family business? Well, you, you, you are invited to a careers seminar, if I could use that term, where over a weekend we get exposed to what the family business is all about. And if you are interested, then you apply. So you do a formal application. It starts off with just a letter that you send to the uncle and you get a response and then you're invited for interviews and even for testing. And then at one point you are then either accepted to join the training program or you are not. In my case, I was accepted. And so I started September 1st, 1980 in Rotterdam in the Netherlands. And uh, on your very first day at a CNA clothing store in Rotterdam, you showed up in a blue suit and white dress shirt. And uh, what, what was the response you got? The response was no need to come in a suit and white shirt and a tie. You'll be working for the next four weeks, unloading the truck and opening boxes and basically taking all the new deliveries of the clothes and getting them ready for to be placed on the shop floor. So, so the next day I turned up in jeans and a t-shirt. <laughs> it was get to work. You got to earn your way up to that uh, executive Correct. wear. Jean-Louis, two decades later, after working your way up the CNA clothing retail hierarchy, as you note, in postings across five different European countries, in 1999, you were transferred to Oakville for two years of specialty retail management training in the company's Canadian stores. Before then, you'd only experienced snow on a ski holiday. You'd never heard of Wayne Gretzky or Tim Hortons. And you had only read about the famous niceness of Canadians. Do you remember your first few weeks in Oakville and how was your transition to Canada? Well, we arrived in May, end of May 1999, and it was hot. It was very hot. So our first experience was unpacking all our boxes in our rented home in Oakville. And then my wife and I, we went to the grocery store. In fact, it was a superstore. And we walked in in our shorts and t-shirts and we got the first glimpse of what it's like when it's cold because it was freezing <laughs> in there. But as you said, I had never heard of Wayne Gretzky. And in fact, I actually saw him in a hotel because I was asked to join a two-week executive course in North York at the York University. And in the hotel, there was this kerfuffle around a certain individual with cameras and so on. And I said, I asked the clerk at the hotel, who's that? And he said, well, that's the great one. And I said, who's the great one? <laughs> And he looked at me and said, um, 
really? You don't know who the great one is? I said, no, I have no idea. And it was Wayne Gretzky. So that was my first encounter with uh, who Wayne Gretzky was or is. Yeah, <laughs> that, That's pretty good. He, he, I think his biggest problem is he gets too many people recognizing. So it would, it would have been nice for him to come across uh, someone new to introduce himself to. Yes. Now, you and your wife fell in love with Canada. So instead of jetting back to Europe after your two-year work assignment, you ended up buying a house in Oakville. What kind of drew you to your place and what made you make this decision to stay in Canada? Well, it was really twofold. Uh, first of all, the job that I was going to go back to after the two-year training in specialty store retailing was no longer available. And so I had to make a choice. Do I go back to Europe or do I look for alternatives uh, here? And my wife and I very quickly decided, you know what, this place is such a wonderful country and such a great place to raise our, our children. Uh, at that time, we had two out of the four. And so we decided to stay. I think if you are, were to ask my wife, what what are the reasons for that? First of all, it's the climate. Many Canadians kind of say, what? You like the winter? I said, yes, <laughs> yeah. we do. We love the fact that there are four seasons and you kind of forget about the summer. We're going now into fall and you, you, you forget about the summer. In fact, there's a point when summer becomes too much and then you start to look forward to the autumn and then the autumn you start to look forward to the winter. And then by the, by the end of the winter, you're really looking forward to the spring and then the summer. And so you just keep going round and round over those 12 months in that way, which is very different to where we grew up, my wife and I, in Northern Europe, where it's predominantly gray skies and rain. That was the first. Second is just, just how people are so kind and welcoming, um, tolerant, um, humble. Uh, I'm with you. And, yeah. The people so, are great, and, and I love the Four Seasons as well. Yes, it's, uh, it's wonderful. Now, Jean-Louis, you spent the 2000s investing in re renewable energy, and in 2010, the family business offered you a very lucrative private equity position, but within four months of starting that position, you quit. Why? I didn't like the work. I was stuck behind a computer screen and looking at figures and then writing reports, and that was not who I am or who, what I wanted to continue to do. And also, I did not get along with the people. Private equity, for me, is a very money-driven industry. It's all about profits, and it's not less about people. I'm a people person, and so I did not feel comfortable in that environment. And in particular, moving back my family back to London, the UK, for that role, did not make sense. So I packed, I packed, I, I said, no, I'm not going to do it. So I, I quit, as you said. Well, let's talk about the inspiration for Little Canada. When you found yourself suddenly, so to speak, unemployed at age 50, what inspired you to develop the Little Canada concept? Well, it first started with me returning from London and telling my wife that I'm, we're not moving, we're going to stay, and that I'm going, that I quit, that I'm now I need to find another activity, another job. And within a couple of weeks, my wife said to me, why don't you open those boxes that you have in the basement? You've had them in there for 10 years since moving from Europe to Canada. 
why don't you open those boxes and keep yourself occupied for a while with that. So I did that, I opened the boxes and 10 years is a long time when you pack things in and when you open the box you, you have a sense of what's in it but you don't really recall exactly what's in there. So I opened the boxes and pulled out the first wrapped piece and it was a crocodile locomotive and it's a Swiss locomotive. It's called the crocodile because it can go uphill into the mountains. And the I got started to get the bug of building a miniature layout, which uh, I grew up with because my father passed on his train layout to me when I was around 12 years old. And ever since I started to build that layout in my basement at home in Europe. When I moved, I had to pack everything up when we came to Canada. And so I unpacked those boxes. That combined with a visit that I had planned with a cousin of mine in April of 2011 to go and visit Miniature Wonderland in Hamburg, Germany. And Miniature Wonderland in Hamburg, Germany is the largest model train layout in the world. It is breathtaking when you go and see it. But I was really looking forward to going to, going to see that in April. So between January and April, I started to dream, started to think, wow, wouldn't it be cool if I did something like that in Toronto? And I dismissed the idea originally, said that there's no way I could ever do that. I don't have the skills, nor do I have the, 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 the drive to be able to, 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 to do that. But it wasn't until April, beginning of April, just before going there, two of my cousins talked to me about what is it you want to do going forward? And I said, well, I don't really know, but I am continuously thinking about this visit to Miniature Wonderland and how cool it would be if I did something like that. And one of them said to me, you need to do that. Don't worry if, you, if you're not successful, but you have to try it because if you don't, you're going to regret it. So that was really, the first drive to, to do that. I think the other, the other important factor of me wanting to do Little Canada was uh, I've got four boys and they all went to the same school. They all went, had the same teacher in grade four, uh, Kathy Peeler, wonderful teacher. And in grade four, you did the province project. And it was a project where you had to do research on one specific province which they were assigned to, or territory. It included looking at landscape, at climate, at agriculture, industry, famous people, and so on, and even create a 3D model. And all this was put on a big board, a three-part board, and then presented to the class. Parents get really involved in those projects, way more than the teachers would like. And my wife and I, we've probably learned more about Canada through those projects than living in Canada. So that combination led me wanting to do what Little Canada has become. No, that's great. And as you say, you said to yourself, wouldn't it be great if I could do something like this in Canada? You knew vaguely that a project of this scale would take several years and cost millions of dollars. You had the time, you had the money, but what you needed was the technical support to turn your dream into reality. Thus, Jean-Louis, you entered into the world of the Model Railway Society. 
What was the model railway society? When I came back from Europe, I sent eight emails. I just went on Google and looked up model train clubs in the GTHA. And I sent it to eight different clubs and I got three responses. And the email that I sent was basically communicating that I had turned 50, I was looking to do a career change, I had this idea of creating this vast model train layout. I attached the link to Miniature Wonderland and I said I'd love to talk with you about it and get your insights. I got three responses and so I visited all three clubs, one in Burlington, one in Hamilton, and then the third one was the Toronto Model Railway Club in Liberty Village. And the president at the time was a gentleman by the name of David McLean. And he invited me to the club. It was a Thursday morning around 11 o'clock. And we met at the Go Exhibition Station. And he walked me up to the building, down into a basement. And the basement was formerly a driving range that's where it was a, a munitions factory where the munitions and the rifles and were tested and there was his club of which he was president of and so he showed me the club showed me the layout he even allowed me to run a train on the layout and then we had lunch afterwards and he said I'm interested in helping you make your, your dream become reality. So that was really the start of it. So you met, as you say, with David McLean. You had lunch at the Moxies in Square One to start planning how you might recreate Canada in miniature. There was so much to discuss that you decided to meet again at Moxies two weeks later, and then two weeks after that. Before you knew it, you had been meeting every other Thursday for 18 months, and in 2013, you incorporated a company called Our Home in Miniature Land, and of course, when you signed the corporate documents, you asked the manager of Moxie's to act as a witness. He, uh, you must have been his uh, favorite customers. Well, he probably didn't know. He didn't know up until that moment why we were meeting every other week. But yes, we signed the documents. We called. We asked if the manager could come out and witnessed, and that was the start of a very long relationship with David McLean. Uh, so he and I then looked for a warehouse in Mississauga that was halfway between where I lived, where I live in Oakville and where he lived at the time in Brampton. And we found a 5,000 square foot warehouse where we started to build, uh, which we acquired in January of 2014. So before very long, this warehouse sounds like it looked like Santa's workshop. The shelves were lined with Plastic people, miniature trees, you of course had to hire architects, electricians, mechatronic specialists, sculptors, painters, digital artists, visual artists. This group was growing so large, although the world you were building was small, the price tag was not. A single square foot of Little Canada could cost between $500 for a sparsely detailed scene in rural Quebec to $1,200 for a packed city block in downtown Toronto. You even recreated a five-by-five-foot Rogers Centre, and that, that alone cost $60,000. So as you got into the Jean-Louis, you had spent $10 million of your own money, but you needed much more money. You decided to raise this additional money, not only from institutional and high-profile investors, 
including Zoomer Media founder Moses Snymer, but you also decided to crowdfund some money and you had 200 investors come through that system. Talk about the crowdfunding experience and I guess it was much more interactive. You got to actually, instead of just getting a check, you really saw the passion of these uh, individual people who wanted to get involved with your project. Yes, so it really stemmed from the model train enthusiasts. In March 2015, we organized some open house events and those events were to show what we had created in that one warehouse, notably Toronto and the golden, what we call the golden horseshoe. And invariably the majority of those who came were model train enthusiasts. And as a result of the visit, many of them came up to me and said, how can I be part of this? I'd love to invest, I'd love to join your team and so on. We did not really have a platform in order to make that happen because taking on a large number of investors with $1,000 or $5,000 investment, we were not geared up for it until we were introduced to a platform called Front Funder, which is a company based out of Vancouver. And that platform allowed us to tap into that world of miniature world model train enthusiasts. And so we started a campaign allowing people of just any person, they did not have to have any specific knowledge about investing that was all part of the Front Funder platform would take care of that. They did due diligence on each of the investors and they could invest as little as $1,000 up to $50,000. And as you said, we brought on board around the 200 of those investors into our community. And they've been fantastic because not only have they put money into the business, but they also are great ambassadors for Little Canada, spreading the word. I think it's great. Not Like you say, not just the money, but they're passionate about the project. Now, Jean-Louis, by 2019, you were getting closer to achieving your dream, but you didn't want Little Canada to live in a warehouse forever. You wanted people to see it and enjoy it like you had planned. So after scouting more than 60 locations, you signed a lease for two subterranean floors, which is where you are now at 10 Dundas East. As I say, used to have a good life gym. Tens and thousands of commuters and students and tourists you have going through that building, so it's a great location. But as soon as your team had deconstructed Little Canada into eight by eight foot squares, the pandemic hit. You must have freaked out. I... That, that's putting it mildly. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> yes, we, were, we had a great event in October. In fact, it was October 4th, 2019, where we announced that we were going to open at 10 Dundas East, which is the building on the northeast side of Young and Dundas with Cineplex in the top of the building, and we would come up, we would take over the two floors in the basement. And at, at that event, we had John Tory, we had Lisa McLeod, we even had Mary Walsh and Moses Neimer. We were on our way to open on July 1st, 2020. That was our opening date. March 2020 came along and so we were shut down. So we ended up delaying the opening to August 2021 with lots of challenges between then and the opening, including 
taking everything apart in the two warehouses. At that point, we had two warehouses. We took apart Toronto, Golden Horseshoe, Ottawa, and Niagara. We put them all into 53-foot trailers, which had to be stored off-site until the space was ready for us to come into here at 10 Dundas. Again, the construction was also delayed. Yeah, well, I mean, talk about, you're all excited to launch. This happens, as you note, the entire exhibition had to be broken down, sat inside 14 tractor trailers for three months. Of course, your lease had expired at your warehouses, your space wasn't ready. But when you were finally allowed to take possession in June 2020, as you note, some delays with construction, and then you got to the issue of how are we going to get the actual exhibition into the exhibition space? The trailers didn't fit through the building's garage doors. The elevator wasn't big enough to fit the squares. There was a structural pillar obstructing the way. The stairwell was too narrow. Jean-Louis, what was the solution to getting your exhibition out of these tractor trailers and into your space? Well, we cut a hole in the floor. <laughs> a big hole, which every piece had to be carried down the es down the es first set of escalators from the ground level at 10 Dundas, then down into the B1 level, again, escalators, and then round the corner and then lowered by a crane to the lower floor, through the lower floor. You can still see where the hole was when standing underneath in the B3 level, and you can see, looking up, you can see the grid where the hole was. And so we did that over a four, four, four five weekends at night. We had to mm -hmm. bring everything through at night because obviously we couldn't do that with the public roaming the, the, the building. And we put everything down, yes, we threw that hole. That's incredible. So you are watching your team plank by plank. Your custom-made Canada is disappearing into this huge hole in the floor. One wrong move could erase tens of thousands of hours of work. And as you note, this had to be spread done at nighttime, so spread over many weekends. This must have been a time of little sleep for you. Or are you able to compartmentalize and separate your work stress from your, your personal life? Uh, it's, it's tough, but with experience, you know, being over 60 years old now, you, 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 you learn very quickly that you have to do that, otherwise you just cannot survive. Uh, needless to say, it was stressful. I spent many of those weekends on site and helping out and doing my part. But I think probably the most stressful moment was the Rogers Centre being carried down the escalators. Eight big men carrying it down down the steps of the escalator. The escalators weren't on. Um, and one false move that could have been a year's work just gone just like that. But needless to say, everything came down in one piece, very little damage. And then we started to put everything back together again. And once you get everything rebuilt, finally came this momentous opening day. Jean-Louis, how did you feel when the project was finally open to the public? and you were now open. That must have been gratifying. It was very gratifying. To this day, I still sometimes wonder what have I done now over 11 years ago, starting from the idea to where it is today. It's very gratifying to see, particularly see guests come through and then being amazed and 
I'm delighted by what we've what the team has created. Well, I think it's just amazing. It's so hard to kind of picture this uh, and to give some perspective. I wanted to share some big facts about Little Canada with our listeners. There are 10,000 little citizens living in Little Canada. You've got 180 autonomous vehicles zipping around the country, as well as 1,500 static cars. The Little Rogers Center roof, it retracts in 60 seconds compared to 20 minutes for the real thing. The height of the Little CN Tower, Canada's tallest freestanding structure, is 14 feet. The Toronto skyline is made up of 30,000 LED lights. It took 3,000 hours to build Parliament Hill with more than 20,000 individual bricks painted. And the biggest stat for Little Canada, 180,000 man hours have gone into building the models. Can you even believe, as I'm reading these facts back to you, I mean, you lived through it, but uh, it must still strike you as the magnitude is incredible. And in fact, only recently, like last week, we were was talking to a colleague and we were kind of thinking, wouldn't it, it would be really nice if we could erase our memories of Little Canada and then walk in for the first time. We don't, we have never really experienced it the way that the guests experience when they first time come through Little Canada. These stats are, and still growing, so they're not static. We just seem to, to live it day by day. I think that's incredible. That's a great comment. You're right. When you're living it, as you say, for 11 years, it would be quite a, a contrast to see someone who's seeing it for the first time. I don't really want to play psychologist. I don't have a degree in that. I don't have training. But I want to venture a guess, Jean-Louis. It's safe to say that you are a man who loves the process more than the end product. Would that be accurate? Yes, that is accurate. <laughs> that and, is accurate. And, in fact, that is also inherent in model train enthusiasts. It's the building of it gives most delight. The end result does also, but building it and, and changing it and adding it, adding to it is where the most satisfaction comes from. And the guests can actually experience that when they meet the miniature makers in the studio or when they go round into miniature mission control, they can actually talk to the miniature makers and get that exactly that experience that I've just explained. Well, as you say, very interactive and it's never done. It's always moving forward. It's never done, correct. I want to talk about some miscellaneous stuff with you, Jean-Louis, that I found interesting. Your house purchase in Oakville was stereotypically Canadian. Do you, uh, do you know what I'm referring to and why? Uh, are you talking about the ice rink in the backyard? <laughs> Absolutely. Tell us about that and, and who had the house before you. Well, the house was owned by Dave Gagné. His son, Sam Gagné, grew up on that rink. A friend of his was John Tavares. So the two of them spent many hours, many days, many years skating and playing shinny and hockey on the rink and we were fortunate enough to see the house when it came onto the market my the reason for actually seeing the house was not actually to purchase the house it was more to understand who the architect was because my wife wanted to build a house from scratch i was not so keen on the idea <laughs> but i convinced my wife why don't you go and visit or look at houses that have been recently renovated or built? And if there's a house that you really like, then that's the architect 
that we should then talk to about building our own house. Well, needless to say, when we visited the house, I fell in love with it, being a Georgian, English-Georgian type house. And my wife said to me when I said, would, would you, could you imagine living in this house? And she said, yeah, I could imagine living in this house. Well, then why, why don't we purchase it rather than build a new house? And then she said, well, there's something in the backyard you should have a look at because... And that was the ice rink. So we went out and had a look. It was, this was January. It was cold. It was the blue sky. The sun was out. Snow everywhere. And we looked at this rink and we said, well, we've got four boys. Our, our youngest had just been born. This is perfect. I mean, we're in Canada. What better sport should my boys learn than ice hockey? That is absolutely quintessentially Canadian. I wish I grew up in a house with a 90 by 50 foot hockey rink in my backyard. I never would have left my backyard. Is it true, Jean-Louis, that subsequent to that, Sam Gagné, who does still play for the Winnipeg Jets, and as you note, his friend, our captain, John Tavares, is it true that they would occasionally pop by and still skate in your backyard with your boys? Uh, they, they used to. Uh, they both have families now, but back when they didn't, uh, at Christmas, they would come by. Um, Sam would give a call to my wife and say, is it okay if I come uh, and skate on my rink? <laughs> that's how, um, in fact, that's how his mother referred to it. One occasion, he asked, is it okay if I bring a friend? And my wife said, yeah, of course. And the friend was John Tavares. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. That's well, a great story. Jean-Louis, you became a Canadian citizen soon after you incorporated your company. Why was becoming a Canadian citizen important to you? That's a great question. Why was it important to me? I think it was important because I, in my whole career, or in my whole life, I've only lived in the Netherlands for 10 months. Everywhere else I've lived, I've lived as a foreigner. Living in a country as a foreigner there's one thing that you never can do, and that is vote. And secondly, you just always don't feel that you belong. And so in 2009, my wife, being Belgian, decided, now let's become Canadian. The three younger boys were Canadian because they were born here. My oldest was not because he was born in Belgium. And in 2009, the Belgian authorities allowed dual citizenship, which was not the case before. And so my wife applied, and because my son, my oldest son was less, was younger than 16, was able to, to apply automatically with my wife. And so they became uh, Canadian citizens. I could not become Canadian and because I, the Dutch do not allow dual citizenship unless you are married to a Canadian. So when my wife became Canadian, I then applied <laughs> to become Canadian. Yes. So in 2014, I became Canadian. And ever since, we now all are proud to have the passport in our wallets when we travel. And we also, also as a family, uh, vote which, um, as I said, I'd never been able to do before because we weren't allowed to. Well, that's great. Well, it's, it's a, it must have been a great feeling. And, and now, as you say, you're fully integrated and participating in the whole process. I want to ask you, Jean-Louis, you 
as you say, they live in Oakville. You're spending all your work time with Little Canada at Young and Dundas. Tell us some of your favorite places to eat in Toronto, other than Moxie's. Favorite places to eat in Toronto. Yeah, where do you like to go? Any hidden gems that you've found? I have to say I've not found a specific hidden gem other than uh, salad bars and places to get salad. You're a healthy guy. I'm a healthy guy. <laughs> I, tried, I try to stay healthy. It's important when you reach my age. But I have found some wonderful places outside of Toronto, which are gems, uh, notably in Oakville. Uh, one of our dearest places to go for brunch on a Sunday is a place called Stoney's on Kerr Street in Oakville. And in fact, we have Stoney's represented in our Oakville uh, area in the Golden Horseshoe, so you can actually see Stoney's there. Oh, that's great. Uh, another one is uh, the Seasons Restaurant, also a favorite of ours. And uh, my wife has particularly found these wonderful places in Burlington or in on the east, on the on the west side of Oakville. Plank is a we go there regularly. And then there's up in north in the Muskokas, there's a wonderful restaurant that we came across. It's called Crossroads. Uh, really wonderful. My wife, to lesser, lesser than me, but I'm, I'm a creature of habit. I always like going to the same places again and again. I yeah. generally always order the same, same <laughs> uh, dish. Um, I'm not the, I'm not the vent- adventurous type in that regard. <laughs> you like stability. You like to know what you're getting. Yes. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Well, Jean-Louis, as we wrap up, and I greatly appreciate your time, what's next for Little Canada? And further, what's next for Jean-Louis Brenningmeyer? Well, what's next for Little Canada is we continue to build out Canada because we've only built five destinations. We've got another six to complete. East Coast is next. I'm really looking forward to unveiling the East Coast next year in 2023. The team has already started to build structures. Four of the team just returned from the East Coast on an exploratory trip. That will be followed by the prairies in 2025, sorry, 2024, and then the North in 2025. And in fact, the North we delayed from this year to 2025 because we really want to take our time to ensure that we really tell the stories that is worthy of the North and in particular through the eyes of the indigenous peoples of Canada and who better to actually make those stories into Little Canada than Aboriginals themselves. So that's 2025 and then 26, 27 and 28, not yet clear in which order, will be Montreal, the Rockies and the West Coast. From now till 2028, we're still going to build out Little Canada so that we can say that we have accomplished the vision of coast to coast to coast. And for me personally, I'm not going anywhere. As far as I'm concerned, I'm healthy and I'm excited to be part of this wonderful uh, attraction, this part of this wonderful team of uh, just around 100 people, 100 colleagues that work here at Little Canada. I look forward to welcoming guests for many years to come to share what we have created. My wife regularly asks me 
when are you going to retire? <laughs> and I always say to her, darling, trust me, you don't want me to retire. <laughs> it, it's better that you have something to work on. I mean, it's so clear you're a process guy. You've accomplished so much with this project. There's so much more to come. It's very exciting. And I would like you to tell us where we can best follow you and Little Canada on social media. And most importantly, how can people come visit Little Canada? Well, you can follow us on all the different me social media platforms, whether it's Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, LinkedIn. And you can find us on our website, little-canada.ca. You can purchase a ticket on through the website. You can also just turn up and buy a ticket. I think one of the things that I'm particularly proud of is that you can actually be immortalized when you come. You can get your picture taken or we call it, you get scanned. It's basically 120 cameras take a picture of you and we will 3D print you in miniature, roughly a three quarter inch size. And then we can put you in the world of your choosing. Wow. And so that's how you can f not only find us, but you can also stay here forever. <laughs> that's fantastic. Wow. That is a great uh, opportunity to go get scanned, printed in 3D, put into the world of your choice. That's amazing. Well, Jean-Louis, I want to thank you very much for your time, and I wish you continued success with Little Canada. Well, thank you very much, Andrew, and it was a pleasure talking to you. My pleasure. And to the dear listener, we thank you for listening to this episode of the Toronto Legends podcast. On behalf of Jean-Louis Brennenkmeyer, I am Andrew Applebaum saying mahalo. The Podcast Super Friends is a monthly meeting of five podcast producers. Hi, I'm Catherine O'Brien from Branch Out Programs in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I'm John Gay from Jagged Detroit Podcasts. I'm Matt Kundal from the Sound Off Podcast Network. I'm David Yes from Pod 617, the Boston Podcast Network. And I'm Johnny Peterson from Straight Up Podcasts. Together, they form the Podcast Super Friends, an alliance of podcast masterminds sharing best practices, insights, and discussions to help make you a better podcaster. Follow or subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or at soundoff.network. I'm Matt Kundal, host of the Sound Off Podcast, the show about podcast and broadcast. Since 2016, we've been speaking with amazing people who have populated your ears for decades. Legendary broadcasters, research wizards, talent experts, podcasters, voice talent. Almost 400 stories, all for free. Subscribe or follow the Sound Off Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at soundoffpodcast.com.